Will This Be On The Test Teacher Pod is a podcast by, for, and about teachers. It's not a place where we discuss rigor or teaching methods or sell lesson plans. It's simply a safe space for teachers to share their stories, frustrations, and triumphs, and for our listeners to realize, episode after episode, that they're not alone. Will This Be On The Test Teacher Pod is sometimes funny, sometimes disturbing, but always honest. Welcome to Will This Be On The Test Teacher Pod. Two teachers explore the realities of education. This week, we'll be talking with public enemy number one about student behavior and discipline. Public enemy number one is a teacher who spends part of her day in the classroom and part of it working as a behavior interventionist at the high school level. I'm Yo Miss. And I'm Miss V. And how are you feeling? You've been sick. (sighs) Yes, yes. Scotty and I both finally came down with COVID. We have never had COVID until now. And this was the, as I put it to my children, the streak is over. We both had it. We got it, I believe, on New Year's Eve because I ran in a twilight run, a two-mile run, because I thought that'd be a fun thing to do. And of course, it started and finished at a bar. And so Scotty (laughs) waited at the bar for me. And then I went into the bar and had a beer after. And, you know, we were probably there for, he was there probably for half an hour. I was there for maybe 15 minutes. And two days later, I'm like, you know, I just, I don't know, I just don't feel great. And, you know, I did the test and it basically spoke to me. It was like, pink, 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 you're sick, you're sick, you're sick. So, and then a couple of days later, Scotty got it. And right now we're, I'm past my 10 days. He's still got a day or two, but I'll tell you it. I mean, we were very fortunate. It was a very mild case for both of us, but it, it knocks the shit out of you, man. It really does. Even a mild case. I, you know, I, uh, Definitely could feel it in my breathing, definitely, you know, taking naps in the middle of the day, which, you know, fortunately, I didn't have to, you know, I could do that. But it's, uh, it's nasty stuff. And I don't know how, you know, if you have a really bad case, it must really be awful. So yeah, my parents had it also for the first time and about the same time as you, I think just before you. Mm -hmm. And they had a similar experience that really like wiped them out for probably four or five days. And then maybe two or three were really bad. And then once they kind of were over it, they still are feeling kind of like they notice they're winded a little bit more easily. Yeah. But now my mom lost her sense of taste. Did either of you lose your taste? No, not, did not. So therefore did not lose any weight in the, (laughs) there was no benefit in that regard. (laughs) Actually, it was the, the day that I tested positive, I ate something that I normally eat. And I was like, it tastes different, but it didn't taste bad or it didn't taste like nothing. It it still tasted delightful. It was just a little different. So, um, (laughs) but no, I, I would just say I'm, I'm more winded than anything. I mean, I'm back to running, but I'm running slower than Mm -hmm. I had been. Like I'm, I'm trying to take it slow. And honestly, I wouldn't even be doing it except I have a few races coming up in March, like half marathons and stuff. So I have to, Mm. I have to train for those. So yeah, but um, it does make you really like appreciate those first that first year when no one had any resistance to it or vaccines, you know, how awful. I mean, we heard all the stories and we knew but to get it now this many strains in and this many vaccines and boosters in and still feel like, you know, it hits you still harder than a cold. So yeah, you know what I 
I, in addition to hitting you harder, it's just got a weird trajectory. Like usually you get something, you have it for a couple of days, it gets worse, then it starts to get better, 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 and then you're done. And this is like this back and forth kind of thing where if you push it too far one day, the next day you feel like shit, then you feel better, then you don't. And you just don't know when it's going to stop. Yeah, that's kind of how my mom was because they're in Arizona now. And I would talk to her and she'd say like, yeah, I'm feeling better today. And then the next day I'd get a text from her and she was like, yeah, yesterday afternoon, I really felt like crap. This morning I woke up. I feel like crap. I don't think I'm getting any better. And then by the evening, she'd be like, I went out for a walk. So, I mean, it did seem like just when she thought she was over it, then she'd have a bad day. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't do well with like gray areas in which shows you why the last couple of years for me have been hell because (laughs) I'm like very much like it's either this or this, you know? And so this is not, not my cup of tea to not know like, okay, am I going out for a run and going to hack up a lung on the way? Or am I going to be like, this is so great. You know? So I always get to a point when I'm sick, well, I haven't had COVID yet. So you haven't? No, that I know of. I mean, I've taken tests when I've been sick and thought I've had it, but unless I'm one of those weird asymptomatic people and had it two years ago and never knew, but Mm -hmm. I get to a point where I've been sick and then it feels like it's been enough. And so I sort of decide like I'm over it now. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like tomorrow, I'll I'll obviously be over it. And then I try to get about, go about my day. And when I'm not over it, I'm real pissy about it. Yeah, like I decided like, this has been like three days. I'm not going to just keep being sick. And then right. the next day, if I'm still sick, I'm real like, it's not fair. I'm real pissy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's COVID been, might be a rough for me. <laughs> yeah. It's it's definitely a back and forth thing. And and I've still been, I think I canceled one client. And otherwise, I've been coaching all my clients because I do it via Zoom. It's not, you know, yeah. there's nothing dangerous about it. And you think to yourself, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, I'm not like up, like when I was teaching, I was up and running around and all this. I'm like, oh, I'm sitting, but still I'm talking for an hour. And like the first day that I actually coached like three, three clients or something, I was like, I am done at like eight o'clock. I was like, I'm going to bed. Like, I can't do this. Yeah. So I pushed it also saying like, I'm done now. I don't want to be sick anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the secret. It's all in your head. You it just is. have to manifest wellness. That's, uh, that's really right. What it's about. That's right. I'm going to do the the, the secret. Okay? The secret. The, the secret. <laughs> when that came out and people were just like, oh, I'm going to do a vision board and I'm going to manifest this. And I'm like, okay, no. Like, and, and it's irresponsible because people were like, you know, especially if they were sick, they were, you yeah. know, there is something to be said for okay, I'm going to try to, you know, limit my stress because that's going to help me in my healing. I'm all yeah. for that. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm not much of a new age person, but I meditate. I do that stuff, you know, whatever. Some people will be shocked to find that out about, about me, but I do. <laughs> but, you know, it's, these people are like, no, just envision yourself ha- being healthy and you don't need to have chemo. It's like, okay. And now envision yourself dead because that's not how this works, you know? There are pieces of this that are beneficial. Like no one wants that person that only dwells on the negative or you're trying to get over a breakup or you're trying to give yourself the confidence to make a career change. So you think positive things, you focus on your strengths. Like there's benefits to that, but 
that book has like an entire chapter about manifesting like healthy Mm -hmm. outcomes. And also it says that people who are overweight are thinking too many fat thoughts and that it's more, more thin thinking is what you need. They did raise a good point of if you can manifest things, how come no one in that book is manifesting like world peace or like cures, like, why do you manifest your own cancer to be cured? Why don't you manifest a cancer cure? You know, who's manifesting the person who wrote the book and is manifesting all their millions in the bank. They, they, they are like, people are stupid. Let me manifest some money this way. And that's, that's the only thing. She's written many, several books. And then in the like trailer, there was like a YouTube thing like promoting it and Mm. there's a quote in it that says the secret is like what was what is and what will be and then they attributed that to Ralph Waldo Emerson Um, he didn't talk about the secret (laughs) and how can you put that in a book and publish it Uh, who publishes that uh, and then Oprah sells it I'm actually real angry about the Waldo Emerson part Okay. Well, I'm glad we went from COVID to complaining about <laughs> complaining as usual. As we introduce our guest here, I was because we wanted to talk about behavior and how it's sort of just gotten atrocious since COVID. And anecdotally, I feel like that's true. Like all of my teacher friends are talking about it and seeing blurbs on social media. And so I Googled it before the episode to see if there like have been some studies and things. And I was like doing the same thing, reading these statistics of like school saw a 56% increase in classroom disruptions. And, you know, I was trying to like, all right, I don't want to be that person (laughs) (laughs) twist the statistic. But so it all relates, but this was based on a study done by the U S department of ads Institute for education sciences. So I feel like we cite only the most credible sources. We do. It's either them or we cite ourselves, one or the other. Yeah, Very also credible. sometimes Reddit. Yes, <laughs> always Reddit. Okay, well, why don't you introduce our guest and we'll get on here, get going. All right, so our guest, public enemy number one, <laughs> is somebody that I know as a colleague, as a fellow teacher, but in the most last few years has also taken on a role part-time working as a behavior interventionist. And so I thought this was a good opportunity to talk about that where sort of like the anecdote of behavior and the statistics meet with some real first-person experience since you handle all the kids that get sent to the office. So (laughs) you're like the perfect person to ask. So maybe do you want to give us sort of like a little summary of your career? Because you've had a variety of different roles in the world of education. Sure. I started out teaching. I actually did my student teaching in a different state than I'm in now and um, in a very large urban school. And then I went from there back to my home state and worked in a very large urban school here, not locally, but in my state. And when I got married, then I moved back to close to my hometown. Really, I've always taught high school and love that age group, lots of juniors and seniors. So really the old, you know, the ones that are just about adults. And I think that's very different than even freshmen. They don't buy into you quite as easily. Um, So you gotta, you gotta figure out how to work with them. But, and then 
I got a master's degree in educational leadership and a post-master's degree in ed leadership. And that just sort of opened the door for me to do work with behavior. It's not exactly what I set out to do. I really thought I would be working more in curriculum. That was kind of my interest was like writing curriculum and overseeing curriculum. And then this opportunity arose and it's actually, I don't know if I can say, I, I, I enjoy it in sort of a self-punishing <laughs> way most <laughs> days. <laughs> you know, you leave school and you're like, never again. And then the next day it's just back at it. But um, I actually, for the most part, do enjoy it. But there are lots of times I'm just shaking my head at students and parents and other people well, in schools. <laughs> I was thinking, we were talking the other night about whether or not this is like behavior is worse or do you just know about it more now because now you're in the office more and when we're in our classrooms we can just pretend like nothing in the world is happening <laughs> has it changed your view i mean now when you're in your classroom do you feel like you kind of also have an administrator hat on has it changed how you view oh for sure you as a teacher? and because i am in the classroom i do notice a difference you know i definitely think in the last few years my classes today, the way that I manage them is different than I would have managed them five or 10 years ago. And then, yes, you know, I look at them differently. I think one of the big things is that for a long time, everybody sort of classifies kids. And I think we do this in society anyway, but we sort of classify kids into different criteria. And I tend to have in my classes the quote, good kids. So you have the good kids and then you have the bad kids. And then you have some that just kind of fly under the radar. The wallflowers. <laughs> yes, kind of. That just are like, they don't want to be noticed at all. And I've really had to change my view of that. I think working in a more of an administrative role and working directly with students and parents and stuff to not use that terminology for kids of like, this is a good kid. Because, you know, everybody is capable of doing bad things. And on the other side, I, you know, every kid who's labeled a bad kid has the opportunity to to change and grow. And, and we've seen some of that, too. So I think that's been one of the biggest things is I'm used to, like I said, having these kids that are considered the so-called good kids. But I think that there is much more similarity between students. You know, they're much more homogeneous than we usually give them credit for. So now let's say you're in your role as an interventionist and some kid does something wrong, throws some, is throwing things in a classroom because that can happen. How, take us through like what, how that, how you address that, how that's dealt with. So, you know, lots of times they're kids I don't know. Well, not anymore, but when I started, they were a lot of kids <laughs> I didn't know. They weren't necessarily kids I had in class. Mm -hmm. So I always try to, treat all of them equally with some form of respect, even though they're in this bad situation. We use progressive discipline, which I do. I do agree with that mentality of like, you know, if they've never been in trouble before, the response to that is going to be different than if they've been in trouble 50 times. You know, it's the same mm -hmm. as with my kids at home. If you've done this 50 times and now we're on 51, my patience is much shorter Mm -hmm. <laughs> then if I've never seen you before and I'm like, oh, I've never seen you before. 
but anyway, we talked through the situation. Sometimes, you know, if we need to talk to anyone else involved, like witnesses or anything, um, we do that. And then, and then we look at the handbook. I look at it with the kids. I like to think I'm pretty good about calling home. I have found not, you know, in many schools and people that I talk to in similar roles, some people never call home. Mm -hmm. My own children have been in trouble and they, it's hit or miss whether I even know about it as a parent, more if it's just like a secret. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, as a parent, like to hear from my kids' schools. And so I try to be, you know, I try to involve parents when needed, at least to let them know what's going on. And then, you know, the kid serves whatever that bonds is. Mm-hmm. What's hard for me, well, and was always when I taught, was even when I'm so mad at a kid or like they've done something that's like black and white, like you plagiarized your essay, you were cheating on the test right here in front of me and I caught you. And in the moment, like I'm mad and you're in trouble, but then like if I like have to deal with it at the end of the day or the next day, especially if the kid cries, then I'm like, well, they didn't know any better. They're just a baby. (laughs) And I mean, even if they're a senior in high school, because they are kids. No, I know this is why I never would go into administration. (laughs) No, but you also would have been destroyed in middle school. Like you could not teach middle school like that. First, first, I think we've made it clear on this podcast for many reasons I couldn't teach. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you cannot do that. Like, I'm, I think it's hard for me with my own kids too. I'm, I like to think I'm not a pushover. Actually, it's easier with my own kids because I'm with them all the time. But how, I guess that's my question is like, how do you, how do you balance? Like you have to hold them accountable, but also like you have to give them grace because they are kids, even big kids at high school, you know? Well, you know, I think it goes back to like being a reasonable person. I, you know, this about me. I don't get angry very quickly. There are times, there are things that really tick me off, but I try to go by the book as much as possible. I really think that's like, that's why the book is there. Lots of people have looked at it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I like to talk to someone else sometimes before I make a decision. Like if I know I'm really mad, I'm mm-hmm. fortunate to have coworkers in similar positions that I can, you know, go to and say, how would you handle this? And then we can kind of compare answers, you yeah. know, and, and sometimes we're on the same page and sometimes not. And sometimes the other person, and then sometimes I can do that for another person. And if they're dealing with discipline and then they say, you know, Hey, what do you think of this situation? I can throw my two cents in there and, and maybe calm them down too. So I try not to make those decisions while I, well, I'm angry when that happens. But like I said, you know, sometimes we're able to punt that a little bit. Like if I'm really, if it's between me and a student, I have someone else deal with it. Mm-hmm. So like if a kid in my class tells me off or swears at me or something, then I generally send them to another interventionist or principal, assistant principal Mm -hmm. or something, because I'm too personally involved. So I try Mm -hmm. to keep it really practical. And there are times, you know, even after the fact that we revisit things with kids, sometimes I'll say, this is, this is the response to that, but let's pin this, like put a pin in this for a couple days. And we're going to revisit this and see where we are. And sometimes a little bit of time adds perspective too. If it's not something like they punched a kid in the face, you know, (laughs) if it was just something that wasn't physically harmful to someone they're around. But after they punched them, were they really sorry? (laughs) 
But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know. Even I know that's not it. <laughs> do you ever work with like, do you ever come across situations where you keep getting kids from like a particular teacher or a class that you sort of try to work with that teacher, you yes. know, to sort of work on their classroom management ahead, yes. you know, ahead of those things happening? Yep. Yeah, we have had that. And, you know, I've had that personally where I start to see a pattern and then it's like, okay, maybe we need to visit this together and say, why is this not working here? One thing I will say about being out of the classroom more and in in a more office-based, school-based role is that you do see patterns. You know, you see patterns of new teachers, you see patterns of old teachers, you see just, you know, different people's management styles and how those affect different kids. And so, yeah, I like, I like to include the teacher as often as possible because they're the ones who, and then this is how I feel in the classroom and how I feel supported is like, I'm the one that kid's going to keep coming back to me. You know, even if they're suspended for three days at the end of the three days, they're coming back to me. You know, we're a small enough school that we don't get a lot of different people. In fact, my first year when I was student teaching, I had a student who choked me in class and he was sent to a different school after that. And then he got in a fight at that school and he was sent back to our school and we only had grade level teachers. And so he was back in my class. So within a month, he had assaulted me, left and returned. And so, you know, the thing is, you're going to see these kids again as a teacher. And so I, when I, when I can be outside of the class and be support to the teacher and help the student and the teacher learn to work together, I think that's better than just punishing the kid. Mm. Well, I think that's interesting. And we posed a question on Reddit asking people like, you know, what kinds of things they've dealt with in the classroom. And there were all, I mean, a lot of horrible things and a real consistent trend of a kid had done something of varying degrees of like aggressive and that, yeah, they end up back in the teacher's class. Like, you know, told me that he was going to bring a knife and stab me, got suspended for three days and then was just back in my class. And I think in traditional discipline where you like have the handbook and it says two days, three, you know, there's no piece in there wherein you work on the relationship part, you know, the underlying, like the motive for the problem. So there were tons of stories on there of teachers who had these issues and then nothing And you know, in the day of teaching, it's not like you can pull that kid out every day for and talk it out until you two have found it, you know? So I think that's a great role separate from admin, separate from teaching to have interventionists who can help like bridge that gap. Yeah. And you bring up a good point, which is time you know, time in a school day is very precious and, and lacking, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a five minute break between classes. You can hold a kid after for 30 seconds to talk to him. But when, when is that happening? And when, and I do like that about my role that I have a little more time and I can be more proactive about, you know, I need to pull this kid and talk to him once a week Mm -hmm. where in the classroom, you never have the luxury of time. Right. You know, it's, you're dealing with it in that moment and then they leave. And then sometimes you don't even really know what happens to them. And then they come back and then it's, there's kind of a disconnect of like, what do I do with this kid now? And like you said, then if they don't come back to you, they go to somebody 
And, you know, I've had both experiences the last couple of years. I've had kids that have changed greatly where I can look and see like, oh, yes, this kid has matured and Mm -hmm. we've been able to make a difference. You know, they have access to school counselors and school social workers and and we have uh, some methods of things that that seem to work. And then, you know, we have some kids that it's just the same thing over and over and you're just banging your head against the wall and it feels like nothing ever changes. And and that I think is maybe happening more since COVID that it feels like there are patterns that are harder to unlearn with kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually where I was gonna, my next question was like what you've seen over the past couple of years in terms of COVID. And and I guess what, what can you do? Like what kinds of things are you, are being done and whether they're working or not, you know, because I know when I talk to my former colleagues, they're just, miserable. And a lot of what they're miserable about is the behavior of the students, because they say it's very disrespectful. It's, you know, kids just, it started out being like kids not remembering how to be in a classroom. Mm -hmm. But then it stopped being sort of this innocent, like they don't remember. And it's more, they're just not they don't care, like they're just getting up and walking out, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So what are you seeing? And what do you what do you think can be done? Yeah, I do have a completely unresearched theory. Go for it. This is the place for of, that. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't really figured it out. But here, so when everybody was home and I I have kids at home and you have them home for a, an extended period of time. And I mean, like my elementary kid, I think I gave up after the first month, even when they went back to school and she was only home one day a week that day, like trying to get her to do all of her work was just like, that's never going to happen. I just (laughs) sort of like threw up my hands. I was like, I can't wait till she goes back to that teacher. And, you know, yeah. and I feel like what we have now is the, is the reaction to that. Kids are back. They don't necessarily, like you said, it's not just that they're not used to being back because they kind of are used to being back now but they're kind of like, what are you going to do to me? Like, I don't really mm-hmm. want to do this. And I've gotten away with a lot of them at home. And I'm a pretty involved parent. But even I can admit like, yep, my kids slept in some days when they weren't supposed to or whatever. Yeah. And, and then even when I contact parents, they're kind of like, yeah, I tried it. I couldn't fix them. You fix them. And I think for many years, I mean, probably forever, some parents have expected schools to fix their kids issues, you know, I'll just send them to school and then school take care of it and they'll be better. And obviously that doesn't really happen, but I feel like right now, you know, when I contact parents, sometimes they're just like, yeah, I don't know what to do about that. Or sometimes they're even further the other way that, that they're just like, yeah, that's just the way they are. And there's not really that support at home of them saying like, that's not appropriate behavior. So I don't know. That just had come to me not too long ago that I thought, maybe the parents are so it's the parents who are worn out. And so they've stopped holding those expectations for kids too. But definitely, the kids are worse. (laughs) I just wouldn't say the kids are the behavior is worse. It did feel like when it during like the lockdown, at first, it was like, Oh, no, we're what do we do? Then we were like, Okay, we're gonna forge ahead. And people were like, posting online these ideas and everyone was homeschooling for two weeks and we were all the best parents. And then I agree. It became like, this isn't sustainable. (laughs) 
And then it was kind of the end of the year. So we were like, let's just get through the summer. And then by the fall, we'll send. I think we all felt like it wasn't really going to be that big a deal. Like, yeah, you know, and I'm similar to you. Like I'm an involved parent. I think school is obviously crazy important and we focus on it in our household. But man, by like May of that lockdown spring, it was kind of like, you know, a little bit here and there isn't, you're going to be fine. You're going to go back in the fall. Teachers will fix you. And then, yeah, then the fall wasn't normal. And I think maybe in the moment we all kind of felt like it was going to be okay. It's just, it almost like us temporary, but then it was temporary for so long. And even now when people say like, well, kids lived through a trauma or these kids, I find my, my first reaction is like, Oh, come on. (laughs) But then I check myself because I think I'm not the same person. I mean, I literally came out of a pandemic and quit a career I had had for 17 years. And I feel like not who at all who I was before COVID and not all of that's because of COVID, but I do think a lot of it is. So, so yeah, I don't, I do think you, there is something to all of our mindsets during that time, even though during the time, I think we were like, it'll be fine. (laughs) And I, and I think everyone in the beginning of like coming back when we were coming back to school, we extended deadlines on assignments and, oh, you got to get them used to this. And so we did make exceptions. We made attendance exceptions. We made, and Mm -hmm. so now we're trying to say like this year, especially I felt like it was the first year was like, this is going to be a normal year. And what we're left with is, is not normal kids. You know, they're kids that have had that. And I, I don't know if you can blame kids for that, but we are kind of stuck with the result of some of those, the way that things went. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really maddening though, because on the one hand, you know, I agree like parents definitely either, you know, at a certain point they were just like, I can't do this anymore. Plus a lot of them were working from home and mm-hmm. it's not like they had somebody, you know, they had to work, you know? So I get that. But on the other hand, now that it's supposed to be back to normal, my, and this is just my opinion, they should be supporting the idea. Okay, now we're back in school. Let's get let's get serious here, as opposed to turning around saying, "Well, it's the teachers. They, you know, they did they mm-hmm. dropped the ball, and everybody's so behind." Like you can't have it both ways, you know. Yeah. You can't blame the teachers, but you also didn't do what you're supposed to do. And you know, I know it was for a very long period of time, but like when I was a kid, there was this big teacher strike in New York City, and we own, mm-hmm. we were out of school for like three months. And when we went back to school, like we went back to school, that was it. Like my mom didn't say like, okay, it's okay that you don't know how to do long division. Oh, well, like, you know, she was like, let's go, you know, and all the parents did that because this was back in, you know, the sixties and things were very different back then. But I mean, it's, it's kind of like these kids are, are behaving in a certain way and the parents are like, well, it's because the teachers don't have control, but like you you've got to start that at home and say like if I hear you're in trouble it's it's COVID's over like the party's over and not that it was a party but you know what I mean and it's time to be supportive well and don't you think like at the risk of sounding like such an old fart like the whole don't worry I'll sound more old (laughs) farty I I feel like our nation 
that whole idea of just, and I hate to say this in a positive, but pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to work. I mean, and I feel like I'm crazy liberal, but I find myself sort of going towards some of these more conservative, like back in my day, but like we have kids who come, you know, as refugees and end up in our schools and God only knows what they've been through. Some of them don't even know where their parents are. And I'm not saying that they're not also struggling behind the scenes. And I don't mean to make it like this is so easy for them, but then they come to school and work their asses off. So there is a part of me that feels like we're just watching kids act like spoiled brats. Like you had it a little tough and now you're just whining about it. But like a lot of people had, I mean, we've had a hell of a lot of wars that kids have lived through all around the world and are, and I don't know that after those wars, we saw these, this like societal shift. And if anything, it went the other way. Like now we have twice as much, we have to work twice as hard to make up for what we lost. But now we seem to be in this, like, well, now everyone has to tiptoe around every kid because everyone has anxiety and everybody's triggered and I feel like a Sean Hannity to say, <laughs> to, to go on this rant, but because I, I think all those things are real for some people, but I think it's almost like it's now suddenly everybody is that. The parents can't discipline because their babies have anxiety, but like maybe they have anxiety because they don't have to go out and interact with people anymore because they can just sit on their phones all day or I don't know, yeah. not to oversimplify it. <laughs> but I feel yeah, like I, the behaviors feel like that of like spoiled brats. Mm-hmm. And that's point. what I see a lot of is not. So I don't work in an mm-hmm. exceptionally difficult school behaviorally, at least historically. You know, I like I said, I worked in two large districts in schools that had a lot of violence where we had cops in every day, gang fights, you know, kind of what you think of when you think of of kids getting in trouble and having discipline issues. And now I work in a school that that just doesn't have really comparatively that kind of and I worked in a juvenile home for a while. And so so this is a little different. But the number one thing I see that that becomes conflict for teachers, especially is work refusal and refusal to get off the cell phones mm-hmm. or give them up, you know, and that feels to me like kind of like you said like this very privileged form of misbehavior. And it seems like, you know, it used to be, you'd have that kid who would put their head down and sleep. I mean, the beginning of my career, even there were always those kids that you just kind of knew they were kind of sloughing through. But now percentage wise, I mean, I have a huge number of kids who end up with me day after day for simply refusing to do what they're told to do. And they may not, some of them get angry with the teacher. Some of them swear, some of them, but many of them, it's just simply refusal. I'm not going to do that or ignoring, just ignoring the teacher speaking to them and just, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not going to. And I find that to be almost harder to deal with than like a fight. Because a fight, you separate the kids, you talk to them, you get to the bottom of like, what made you mad? What caused this? What could you have done differently? And usually those kids, they calm down at some point. Usually the parents are like, yep, that's behavior you shouldn't do at school, you know, be getting in fights. And so there's a solution to it. It's simple. 
few days later, they come back to your class and life goes on. Whereas like work refusal or sitting there on their cell phones or, you know, cheating, there's lots of cheating now. And of course, now we have like the chat bots and stuff to write your papers and all of that stuff. It It's harder, I think, to get them to own up to that behavior, why that's wrong, because they're kind of like, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not. Mm, yeah. I'm not causing any trouble. And, and then it becomes just more and more pervasive. And, mm-hmm. and I have found that to be harder to deal with than some of the more pronounced behaviors. One of the things that we're actually coming across also in these Reddit responses and, and just in general is also people saying that admin backs off a lot. So it'll be, you know, even though the policy is X number of days of in-school suspension or this or that, that in fact, admin's just like, oh, well, and like I, I came across that even before COVID with the admin for whom I worked, where there were policies that he was trying to be like the friend of the kids. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, take your hood off. And they'd be like, no, you know, these bro suits that I can wear it. So it was that kind of thing. So I'm wondering, I'm not saying in your specific school, whether admins like that, but have you been hearing, seeing that as well, like from other colleagues or other places that admins just sort of like, well, we're going to suspend the kid for a day, but that's it. Or we're not we we don't have any proof they did whatever somebody's saying they did or whatever it is. I think for sure that happens. And I think probably for a lot of different reasons, sometimes it is that they're trying to be the friend. I think sometimes it's time. I'm going to deal with this as quickly as possible so I can get back to something else that is pressing, you know, and I need to do. That's where I think schools that have spent some of the money that they've had, you know, from COVID or just, just made it a priority to have, interventionists, I think have had more luck because then you have someone who is available to do those things. You know, I don't have some of the other responsibilities of like true admin. And so I have time to have like, you know, to sit down with a group of kids and I have time, you know, I'm able to walk the hallways a little bit. And sometimes I can do things preventatively also and this I think is just a plug for schools to hire interventionists. If interventionists are not admin, which is usually the case, their teachers on assignment or things like that, then whatever happens doesn't become punitive to the teacher. So where, you know, otherwise I think especially young teachers are sort of afraid sometimes to bring it up or to, or to question if the kid gets the detention They're just like, well, I guess that's all that's going to happen. They're not going to go to someone who writes their evaluations and say, I don't know if that was enough punishment for that kid because there's no safety there to do that. You know, even with good admin, there's just not, you don't feel comfortable doing that. That is such a great point. It really is. You know, I've seen teachers who were struggling with classroom management and would go to like the assistant principal who was basically the disciplinarian. And then ultimately their contracts weren't renewed. And why? Because you don't have classroom management, but how do you get better at it if you can't be mentored by someone? So that's a great point. Yeah, And to speak to your point about the time, because I think of, and this is like an extreme example, but like the shoot, the Oxford shooting that happened here in Michigan, 
a year ago, two years ago, there were a lot of red flags in that case. Well, Parkland too. Teachers reported it. Lots of people reported it. And I think when you only have your administrators doing this stuff, but they're also doing all the administrative work, a lot of that stuff falls through the cracks. Or you go, well, that kid said a disturbing thing. We had the police go out and talk to the parent. Well, there's nothing more we can do because they can't, they don't have the time to, well, I'll meet with that kid every day at lunch, you know, because you got to like, okay, I did the checklist. Let's hope he's okay and move on. So yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think you have to have a team and then you have to have time as a team to handle it. So I know like for me, I work really closely with the school social workers and that's awesome because I'm not a social worker and I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. And sometimes the behaviors are coming from things that are beyond me. And I have to say, you know, and then on the other side, they can call me too and say, we're dealing with this kid. And, you know, the teachers are saying this, these things are happening. One of the things that we try to do is poll teachers. If we're dealing with a kid that has repeat behaviors that we pull the teachers, what are you seeing in your classroom? And then can I come and sit in there and see if I, you know, if they're doing those things when I'm there. And again, it's, it's not punitive to the teacher. And so teachers tend to be very welcoming. In fact, I get emails from teachers. Hey, I just, you know, I feel like this is starting to become a problem. Could you help me? And I didn't feel, you know, in my early years of teaching, there was no one on staff that I could really contact. You know, I had my mm-hmm. mentor teacher who was great, but my mentor teacher was teaching full-time too. So then yeah. who is it that's available, you know, to come in and do that? And so, you know. And classroom management is an area that we don't really help young teachers with. Like we, yeah, like you said, they have a mentor, but so much of the focus is like planning and the the logistical paperworky side of getting your things done that you have to do. But I think that's something that the, the profession doesn't help young teachers because classroom management is an art form, which we could discuss with Flip Flippin if he ever responds. Come on. Yeah. I don't even think colleges, you know, they give you the books like the first day of school and all those they give you those books, but even in college, I don't remember having like deep conversations or practice of what you would do in certain yeah. situations. And then like myself, you know, like I said, my student teaching, I was choked. No, not one administrator spoke to me about that situation. And yeah. at the time I just decided that, well, that was normal. And now I look back and I think, oh my gosh, like not at no one other than the classroom teacher who was overseeing me ever said anything about it. It was actually the teacher next door who came over and sort of like, quote unquote, saved me. I was in the classroom alone because my mentor teacher, when I was student teaching, was working on her baby's scrapbook in the teacher lounge while I was teaching. So I had a similar mentor teacher experience. (laughs) So then you start to kind of question yourself, like, well, I guess this is just how it is. Like I'm on my own here. And that never works well. I don't think when dealing with kids because you're outnumbered and then you start to normalize behaviors by kids that aren't normal. Like that mm -hmm. is not a normal behavior. Back up a second. When you were teaching as a student teacher, your cooperating teacher did not have to be in the room. Not always. No, I think they're supposed to be, but but she wasn't. wasn't. Oh my goodness. Who was I going to tell? There were like four administrators. I didn't know any of them. They never walked around. They weren't visible. 
I mean, my first year teaching, I never saw my administrators. I had four administrators. It was a school of about 2,500. And I never, I taught in a hallway by myself. We had no phones in our classrooms, my first year teaching. So we, there was no contact between myself and the office at all. They had a little cage of pigeons. And they would send. <laughs> Actually, we d- we had one phone, and it was in like a lot, quote unquote, lobby of the staff bathroom, and you wow. had to sit in there, one door away from the toilets, to make all your phone calls. Wow, you yeah. know, See, I I mean, I that's one thing I have to say. I was very very fortunate is that my cooperating teacher was was always around, even though like she was in the back grading stuff. Like I was able to teach and do whatever, but she also, I have to say, and if she's listening, she knows who she is. Um, She was great, but she was also like, I learned my classroom management by watching her. Like that Mm -hmm. was how, you know, because there were, you know, situations that came up. And if I was like, Oh, you know, she'd be like, okay, let's talk about this. You know, that was how I learned it. Not at teacher school, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, classroom management, I guess, to go there from behavior, it's so complicated because it differs from every group of kids you have. And then it differs based on your personality. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I work with seniors. And so I don't find that I have as strict of rules in general because they are almost adults. So like, for example, I don't give a certain number of bathroom passes but I don't Mm -hmm. find that my kids overuse their bathroom passes. They just know, you know, like I ask that they not go to the bathroom unless it's an emergency while I'm talking because I have to do some lectures and stuff. And I said, I don't want you to miss something important. So if you can wait till the lectures are over, you know, there'll be time. And they're old enough to understand that. Whereas freshmen, sometimes they have to go to the bathroom every time they get a text. Yeah. Get a text, (laughs) are overwhelmed, whatever. Yeah. And so it's hard to prescribe something to teachers because I think it is very personal how teachers run their classrooms. And I try not, you know, I'm not really, we have coaches that work with our teachers. So that's not really my job. And sometimes I go to the coach too, and the coach and I can work together. Why am I getting more kids who are getting in trouble in this class? You know, Mm -hmm. what are you seeing? And then we can kind of problem solve together, which is nice you know, without me having to try to boss around another colleague. Something else I was thinking about your choking story <laughs> is <laughs> there's doesn't, there's not ever any like, you know, mental health service or even just ch- opportunity to talk for teachers after upsetting incidents either. There seems to be like this just ex- like, Almost, I think, how we sometimes treat medical professionals. We, like, assume that they're probably just used to seeing death or, oh, that was a traumatic thing, but, like, they're, that's their job, so it probably doesn't affect them when it does. We just kind of assume, like, oh, the principal, they got a detention. But there is never the other side of that where we go to a teacher and say, are you okay? Like, mm-hmm. are you going to be – like, I had a kid when I was pregnant. It was right after Sandy Hook, and I was pregnant. And he was on the other side of the room and he stood up. I've probably told the story in here before and was aiming a gun at me, but it wasn't a real gun. It was a plastic gun, but it didn't have an orange tip. So in a classroom, I was in a classroom with no windows and hormonally gigantically pregnant, all emotioned up because we've been watching news stories about 
Sandy Hook kids for two weeks. I look across the room and he's standing there with his arm straight out, holding it right at me. And I actually got in trouble for, because when I took it from him and I put it in the desk after class, I went down to the office and plunked it on the desk and said, I need to write this kid up. And I got in trouble for plunking it so casually. Like what if a parent was here and thought it was real? And I was like, (laughs) right. But that kid, nothing happened to that kid. Like he was back in my classroom the next day because it wasn't a real gun and it was a whole mess. But I, and I'm not someone who I feel like is so emotionally fragile. I'm usually like these damn kids and back I go. I did take the next day off because I went home that night. And when I started to talk about it, like outside of my, of school, my husband's eyes were huge. And he was like, this is bullshit. And I was like, yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, that's, it was kind of scary. And then I was like, oh, I was so scared, you know? And so, but no one ever talked to me about it, followed up about it. Are you okay? We all had to talk about whether or not it was okay to, if that kid should miss a basketball game, because basketball is like what his incentive was to pass classes. Mm-hmm. And so there's never, we don't take care of our teachers. And then like, gee, I wonder why they burn out. And even if the threats aren't real, or it's just a kid being a bratty kid, or it's a kid with, you know, a disability. And we know this is a result of their disability. It all weighs on you when you're the recipient of it, you know? So fix that also, would you? <laughs> no, that's true. I, mean, I think I had... you're in a good spot to be kind of that in-between teacher, yeah. student, administrator, parent. You're kind of like the floating, you know, mediator. Okay. Last, last question for you, public enemy, um, from me anyway. Um, so if, if you could wave your behavior interventionist wand over your, the situation, what, what would you change to help with behaviors that you're seeing now? Well, like I said, for most schools, I would say if they don't have interventionists or other roles, that are sort of the bridge between admin and teachers and classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be hiring and they need to hire people who've been in the classroom for more than two or three years. I had been in the classroom and still am in the classroom for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think you need that, you know, you need 10 plus years that you've s- sort of seen it all, if, you know, mm-hmm. before they pull you. I've done 60 some credits in Ed leadership. I don't think I ever had conversations or professional development or training on the best ways to deal with staff when it comes mm-hmm. to things like emotions, conflict, trauma, those kinds of things. And I would be really curious to see what districts do to train their admin mm-hmm. to help support their classroom teachers. And I would think that would have been something that came up during COVID you know, knowing that yeah. everybody was going through, you know, sort of a collective trauma as well as individual traumas of what that would look like when teachers came back into the classrooms and knowing that behavior had changed. Um, I think behavior has been changing for a long time and I don't think it's all attributed to COVID, but so I think there would, that would be good money spent and time spent would be on, on training for admin. You guys talked about teachers feeling empowered. I think continuing to remind teachers that they do have power in their classroom, you know, and that, that they should feel like they can go to someone on staff and, 
you know, talk about some of these issues without feeling like it's going to come back on like, well, if you were a good teacher, you'd fix that kid. Because if I've learned anything in parenting and in this role, you know, like at home, I can be the best parent, but it doesn't mean my kid's always going to be the best kid. Mm -hmm. And you can be the best teacher. And it doesn't mean your students are always going to be the best behaved students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think, I think those would be some things that just on a very practical level would start to trickle down to the kids. And then I think just consistency, which again, goes back to, I think, parenting too, that kids know what's expected of them. And that we stop using this excuse of like, well, you've been through some hard things. And so we're going to lessen the expectation. I think you can hold really high standards for kids, even mm-hmm. kids who've been through hard times, even if you differentiate how, how that looks, mm-hmm. you know, they need to know that the expectation is if they're going to be there in your class, that they're, that all of the adults at that building are expecting that from them. Well, I vote for you for president. just based on that platform alone (laughs) well thank you I think that that's a good place for us to end the interview part but we're not done yet so now we are going to move into our pop quiz section where we will ask you a question and 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 it's it's not a hard question you look panicky don't panic (laughs) and and uh, we're all going to answer it too so Miss V do you want to go first you want me to go first um, I can go. Okay. I would like to know of all of the reality competition shows, if you had to be on one or you could see yourself on one, which one would it be? Hmm. <laughs> I think Amazing Race because I could go to lots of countries and I could remain fully clothed the entire time. <laughs> that's fair. That's, that's yeah. fair. I was expecting Love Island from you. (laughs) I've actually never seen that. (laughs) I I have to agree with Public Enemy, although I've never seen it. The Amazing Race was what I was thinking of immediately. It's again, you know, you're traveling around, you're you're doing, you're doing things, you're doing stunts and thrills and stuff. But you know, to your point, you don't have to get naked and. So I love you to everybody in the in you know, and it, there. It's not as extreme as like Survivor, like that. Right. Those or, kinds or, of stuff. Or fear yeah. factor. Naked yeah. and afraid. There's a good one. Oh yeah. 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 No. No. <laughs> I I personally would, even though I would wash out in the first round, but I would personally like to be on the Great British Baking Show. I mm-hmm. just. You know, I, I just to be around those people and also to be around Prue and Paul and have them say, like, my cake is claggy or whatever. Your, like your sponge, <laughs> my sponge is stodgy, you know, but I <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would like to have the talent to actually make it to be on there. And then I would like to I just think it just looks like so much fun. And just it, they all get along so well and they make such good friendships and stuff. So it looks they're, like they're very British. Yes, yeah. I, I don't qualify on that part but <laughs> the rest of it would be kind of fun my son and i just finished the great junior baking show it took us forever because nine-year-olds have attention spans you know of fruit flies but we finally <laughs> finished it and it's funny stop blaming kid- him it was you come on <laughs> stop i will say there are a fair amount of times that we started an episode and i fell asleep and uh, so yeah that's true. There's the truth. There you go. but it's funny because one of the kids from the first episode there was a kid that he picked as his favorite 
And it came all the way down to, this is an old season. I don't think I'm going to spoil this for anyone. It was Robbie was his favorite. And this Reese, the two of them like were standouts the whole show. And it kind of came down to those two in the last and, and Robbie did not win. And my child was just livid. And I was like, dude, you're more upset than the actual kid on the show. You know, he's like smiling and hugging. And my kid is like flapping around in the bed. This isn't fair. This is rigged. I was like, oh my God. I would probably also like you pick like a cooking, one of the cooking ones. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I really have a chance. I just like to imagine I could. So I'd probably be more like the level of like nailed it. top chef but I like but if I had the ability it would be cool to be on top chef because I similarly like love those hosts and have watched like every season and would just love to be like in the top chef kitchen but I would never make it past the audition (laughs) same same like you know there has to be suspension of disbelief like me being on a show is like impossible (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, here's my question. And this came up from a conversation that Scotty and I had earlier today. So, you know, when you go to a job interview and they ask you like, so what skills do you have? And you, you know, try to say things that, you know, fit in with what you're going to be doing. Like, I'm really good at talking to people or I'm very organized or whatever. If you, if they said to you, give us a skill that it has nothing to do with this job and is something sort of out of the ordinary what skill would you say? So I'll give you my answer because it'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about because it's a little bit tricky. So my answer would be that I am an awesome parallel parker. I can (laughs) parallel park on the right side, on the left side with, you know, between two cars. I'm really good at it. I rarely hit the curb. I've gotten a little worse at it over time because I rarely do it anymore. But um, that would be, if they said, what's a skill that you have? I'd be like, I'm very organized on this and that. And I parallel park really well. So that's not your best skill. Your best skill is interlocking your toes. That is true. But that's not a skill. Oh, that Like this? That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I can your do that. Toes? Yeah, I can. But that's not a skill. That's like a, a freak. That's a skill. That's a freaky thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> I I am sort of simultaneously disgusted and intrigued. Well, I will tell you that I used to tell my classes that I could do this and I would show them on the last day of school and I would show them. And they don't go and they don't go. I can pick up like a pen or a pen. Like I have good toe dexterity. Yeah, but I can like pick up a piece of paper and with my toes. I can do that. I will have to try your trick. Try try it out. Actually, it's a hereditary thing, but it stopped with me. My children cannot do it, but my dad I'm could do it. My brother sure I can do get it. myself in the physical position. You have to cross your legs like this and then do it like that way. I'll send you a picture later. Oh, <laughs> okay. So you aren't in like butterfly. No, no, that's impossible. That's, I, I've never tried. I honestly, as Scotty knows, I didn't know that this was something that people that everybody couldn't do. Like, I just thought it was normal. And then when I went to college and I was like <laughs> sitting on my bed in the dorm room, like I, I had, like, I sit like that did, when did I'm like, yeah, I do. Like, I just sit that way. And my roommate was like, what the fuck? Like, what, what are you doing? And that's so, what I do you know out. that, that cramp that you get in your foot where your baby toe 
like splays out yeah. and then you get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like just thinking about this is <laughs> making my foot cramp. Like I yeah, feel but, like I'm on but, the verge of having that toe cramp. Just yeah. imagining. Yeah. That. But again, I don't consider that a skill because it wasn't something I learned. It's just right. something I'm able to you're do. Lucky enough to be. It's born. like Scotty. You're, it's not a skill that you're incredibly good looking. It's just how you are. <laughs> oh, I thank you, honey. <laughs> I work at that. Yeah, but no. I'm I, talking about a learned skill. All right, go ahead. Okay. Well, what I was going to say, although it's not really a learned skill, is I have a, I have a really good sense of direction. He does. Mm-hmm. He does. I I, I, <laughs> I can come out of the subway and know which way I'm going. You know, it's one of those. It, I, I I don't get turned around easily. Well, mine is sort of related to the last one, but I do think I'm a good cook, maybe not top chef level, but also I'm really good at food presentation. Okay, that's I a like skill. Just for no good reason. I like to arrange a very beautiful plate, like only for me. And then my husband just flops his food on and I'm like, <laughs> look how ugly your food is. <laughs> like, I'm like placing cilantro with tweezers. Like, look at me. <laughs> So that, I guess, is mine. That's a skill. Okay, Public (laughs) Enemy, what's your skill? Well, this one kind of goes along with yours, I guess, a little bit. I can walk anywhere barefoot. So, you know, my feet, they just are, I guess, dead. I don't know. I can walk anywhere barefoot, hot, cold. My feet are also very leathery. Our trash is a long ways from our house. And, um, I frequently at night will walk out there and then it's dark too, because we have no real, we just have one neighbor and no streetlights. So mm-hmm. then it's like, you don't even know what you might step on, on the driveway, you know, rocks, sticks. Yeah. Um, doesn't bother me. Just go out there <laughs> barefoot winter wow. and snow. My husband will be like, what are you doing? And just do you go out and snow stuff. barefoot in the same Sometimes way, take the dogs yeah. out. Wow. And I like to be barefoot. Like if I could just be barefoot all the time, I would be. Yes. I wear sandals until it's just absolutely too cold to make sense to do that anymore. And then I'll wear shoes. But yeah, I just. I used to walk around barefoot a lot more than I do now. I've got my, uh, my, my feet have gotten less leathery somehow. (laughs) Yeah. One day my nine-year-old had his feet up on my lap and I like went to tickle them or squeeze them. And I was like, oh my God, I have never felt feel how soft your feet are. Yeah. And I was like, look at his feet. And my husband's like, that's how normal feet are. And he like, my husband puts his foot up like a baby's foot. His foot <laughs> is so smooth. And I was like, what are I got? I mean, mine are disgusting. And yeah. that's also, I think why, because always barefoot. Also, I read loose shoe, like slappy shoes, because your, your foot slides yeah, to the skin move, slide. Move that's why your heels crack yeah. and stuff. But oh. yes, he is grossed out when I, most nights I come to bed. <laughs> are you sure it's your feet? I'm happy to have another partner in this. <laughs> See, now when I was a kid growing up in, in New York City, I used to walk around barefoot here and there until my mother told me that if I continued doing that, I was going to get a tapeworm. <laughs> that I, so that I, I used to I walk around barefoot. Yes, in the horse pasture. And my mom said the same thing to me. And it was a thousand years later when I was teaching to kill a mockingbird. And there's something in the beginning, some reference yes, where I would tell the story. I free, Oh, maybe it's. I think Dill had a tapeworm. No, some, it's no? the you all kid. And he has a something in his, something falls out of him. Oh, like a life falls out of him. Maybe that. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what prompted it. And I yeah. was telling the class and I was like, you're not going to get a tapeworm just walking around barefoot. And some kid Googled it and was like, actually, yeah, you kind of can totally get worms through your feet. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, my mom told me that. And I was like, okay, which I shouldn't have been walking around barefoot anyway. Like there was broken glass and shit all over the place. But I mean, you're, you're more likely you know. to get tetanus, I feel like. Than it's yeah, different. yeah, exactly. But she, she, I don't know. I'm like, how did she even come up with that? Like, you know, just it randomly. It must have been in like a mom handbook. That's my I, mom's good too. Uh, yeah, they they read the same book. Obviously. And I was like, I'm not like I'm purposely like walking on the horse poop. Like I go, I walk around. She was like, it doesn't matter. It's disgusting. Yeah. And here we are. Here we All are. right. Free well, of worms. Free, free of worms and I can cross my, my toes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, public enemy number one. Thank you so much for, for coming on, on the show and for telling us all about behavior and and how important it is to have somebody like you and in, in those kinds of roles and i wish that we had had that when i was when i was teaching it would have been very helpful to us okay here we go thanks to max siskind of max and max in the morning for our intro and thanks to elaine eckert for our artwork thank you to scotty for missing your favorite football game so that you can make us sound fabulous and competent and thanks to all of you for listening If you like what we're doing here on the show, there are two ways you can help us. First, spread the word about our show. Tell your friends, enemies, and even your frenemies. Share us on social media with your teacher and non-teacher friends alike. Second, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Just going to add to that. You don't even have to leave us a review. Just leave us a rating. Just go with that five-star rating. We are, you know, our self-esteem is starting to suffer here. It's not not okay. Um, We would love to hear from you. And we would love to get your five-star rating. Uh, You can find us all over social media. Our contact information is in the episode notes. And thank you all for listening. And don't forget, you need to post your attendance after each hour. And remember, we are asking that you limit your sick days due to the lack of substitutes. So please only be sick on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. (laughs) See ya. Bye.